Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. Happy holidays from our family here at Talking to Teens. To wrap up the year, we're recapping some of our best moments from 2022. We talked about everything this year from vaping to body issues to mental health to career planning, and we wanted to compile the best advice for you to catch up on before the new year. Whether you're a seasoned subscriber or a brand new listener, thanks for choosing Talking to Teens. Sensitivity is often equated with weakness, but it can actually have a lot of benefits. Scott Barry Kaufman, author of Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, talks about how sensitive folks have unique perspectives, even if they need a little extra resilience to bounce back. In this clip from episode 206, we break down different kinds of sensitivity and how sensitive people can make the most of their unique disposition. We also discuss rumination and how it can be a tool for overcoming trauma, but also an unhealthy habit if not properly utilized. What does this mean when we talk about a, a highly sensitive nervous system? There's different ways of thinking about sensitivity, which, which, which uh, makes it a tricky topic. Now, a lot of researchers uh, like Elena Aronson, who's done uh, tremendous work on the highly sensitive person concept. She tends to focus on neuroticism. Uh, she tends to focus on a frazzled nervous system uh, being overly sensitive to stimulation, um, but also an appreciation of aesthetics, again, is, is part of that concept, which, which I was talking about as part of openness to experience as well. So there's multiple dimensions of the highly sensitive person. Sometimes I think that the highly sensitive person thing is framed always in a positive light. It's like we can't ever say that there might be some downsides to it. And I, I don't buy that. I, uh, I mean, there, there are people like Kanye West or there are others. I don't want to put name names um, that they'll say things like, I'm not narcissistic. I'm really just a highly sensitive person. You know, like I'm a highly sensitive introvert and that doesn't excuse behaviors, right? Yeah. There are people who narcissists are very highly sensitive to criticism. Yes, that's true. But you can't just say, oh, I'm just a highly sensitive soul. I'm just a highly sensitive soul. <laughs> no, you, need to, you need to learn self-regulation abilities. You need to learn, you know, like toughen up, man. <laughs> but that's really the sweet spot is being able to be highly sensitive and having the benefits of that type of nervous system, but also having some resilience and being able to um, let things roll off your back. Yeah, I think that's true. There, there are there are definite benefits for creativity to being able to notice the nuances and subtle changes in the world to have a great sensitivity to the world and to others it, it, to a certain degree um, in the meaning in the way I'm referring to it can can be enormous it can can be enormous fodder for creativity and for finding new meanings and for sharing those meaning new meanings with the world that's a big form of creativity. One final thing to ask you about from this book was about trauma and challenging responses to going through trauma and challenging events and this idea of rumination. 
stewing over negative thoughts and emotions, which naturally occurs after a traumatic event. Counterintuitive though it may seem, this kind of repetitive thinking is a crucial step toward thriving in the wake of a challenge. I found this section of the book really interesting because uh, yeah, it's another one of those kind of counterintuitive things where we often think of, you know, oh, just move on, you know, stop, stop thinking about it. Stop talking about it over and over again. You know, are you really, are you still thinking about this? It's really interesting um, seeing the research that you present in the book and thinking about how that kind of rumination can actually be part of the way through from trauma to thriving. So we can't change the past obviously like we can't change the traumas and the challenges we've experienced and we often wish we could the best way is to think more forward thinking about it and uh, have hope what can we do to see what meanings new meanings were made from those traumas and and those challenges in our lives that allow us to maybe shift our priorities or do things moving forward that can allow us to live a more purposeful and meaningful life and i I think that's just the essential question of human existence and uh, because we're always going to have challenges always life is not really clear sailing for anyone but for the majority of humans uh it's not clear sailing throughout our lives and um, that's what it's all about man what advice could we give to a teenager who's really like ruminating or thinking and talking about something bad that happened or something that they're struggling with yeah make the ruminations productive uh, not intrusive Uh, so whenever they're intrusively pop up have them journal about it have them write in and and explicitly explore the meaning behind it explore how it can be productive how it could be productive just even explore that Uh, have them do those exercises i would say to reach their full potential kids need to stay motivated in this clip from episode 208 D.J. Vanis, powerhouse speaker and author of The Warrior Within, explains that motivation isn't automatic, but instead something kids need to create for themselves. How can kids create motivation? D.J. explains that they need to intentionally invest time into the people and environments that keep them inspired. D.J. shares more about maintaining motivation in this clip. You say that the reality is we are the only ones who can create and maintain our fires not our friends, employer, or supervisor. Motivation is not automatic. And I love that. And I wonder if only we can be responsible for our own motivation. What do we do as parents? We have an unmotivated kid or we just have to kind of sit back and hope they light that fire themselves or is there anything we can do? Yeah, motivation is our responsibility. When our kids are struggling with theirs, it's important that we know how well, first we need to know how to motivate ourselves. Totally. Yeah. When we know, when we learn how that works, then we're able to do that better for our teens. Being able to know that motivation is not automatic. I think we fall into a pit when we expect every day that we're going to get up is going to be a bright, shiny thing. Let's go get them. It's like, you have to create that. And the way that we do it is who you hang around with, what you read, what you listen to, how you spend your time, how you take care of yourself. I mean, all these things go into that motivation pool, but it's an investment we make in ourselves when we create it on purpose with purpose, helping our teenagers to do that too. Sometimes it seems like lack of motivation, but sometimes it's overwhelm. Sometimes it's fear. Like they have ideas of what they want to do, but they just, they don't have that belief yet. It's not as strong. So they're kind of shying away. So there's frustration there. Sometimes things are going on at school that, you know, are frustrating or upsetting with their relationships or with their friend group or whatever it may be. 
So trying to get to the bottom of that, it's always easy to label it as unmotivated, but there's always underlying causes for what is actually going on. And we never know what that is until we have the conversation. We're terrible at reading minds. Yeah. I know we try all the time and we assume a lot, but until you actually have a conversation, sometimes we don't know what the heck is going on. I think we're so quick to label kids as lazy or unmotivated. And you know, we don't really take the time to just listen and understand and see what's really going on with them. Yeah. In their world, it's a whole universe and it's different than ours. So until we get into that world with them and figure out where they're at, where they're going, uh, we won't know how to be able to help them effectively. And then the other thing to keep them motivated too is, is cheer them on when they do get a win, when they are succeeding, when they, and it doesn't have to be something huge, the small things and being specific. Like, you know, when you turn in that project yet, yeah, Maybe you didn't get the A plus you wanted, but I saw how hard you worked and that's a great thing, you know, and that kind of work ethic is going to serve you, you know, being able to have that conversation because it's not about the grades or the scores or the test numbers. It's about cheering our kids on so that they're curious about life and that they have a strong, you know, kind of will and resilience as they keep moving forward, because you're, you're not always going to get an A. You're not always going to max out the college tests, you know, you're, but the effort and being persistent in that effort is really what matters. That's what's going to create you into the person that you can become. Yeah, I love that. And I think also a lot of times we miss opportunities to celebrate those wins for our kids because it's something that yes. we don't approve of or that's like not what we were hoping they would do. And they're, they're really excited because they just beat the video game that they've been playing for two months. And we're like, yeah, so now you can get back to doing your homework or, you know, wow, great waste of time, you know, and, you know, we missed that opportunity to really say we noticed how hard they were working or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be video games or school. It could be both. Yeah. Hey, you kick butt on the bit on that game, but I know you've got a test <laughs> coming up on Thursday. Yeah. Right. So you might want to pivot and start now putting your time and attention <laughs> now that you leveled up there and you crushed it. Now it's time to crush that math test. You know, it's like, <laughs> it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. But yeah, stepping on what's important to our kids doesn't help us and it doesn't help them. You know, when we're not understanding what they value or what they think is important or what they enjoy, you know, we need to understand that. And we don't understand what that looks like until we have those conversations. But don't dismiss their dreams. Don't dismiss, you know, their joys. It doesn't improve the relationship and actually has the opposite effect. Making and keeping friends isn't easy. It's especially hard if we're so scared of rejection that we never try. Marissa Franco, author of Platonic, explains why we often act cold and defensive towards strangers. It's because we're scared they'll be mean to us first. In this clip from episode 221, she explains how insecurity can sometimes cause a lack of authenticity in friendships, leading us to be jealous, petty, or angry. To keep this from happening, Marissa walks us through the value of emotional management. We're mean because we're fearful. We're mean because we're scared. We're mean because we're in the self-protective stance of, you know, I'm going to put you down and judge you because I actually feel bad. Yeah. Or I'm going to come off as cold and withdrawn because it's vulnerable for me to admit that I need friends. And the secure people are able to just come clean with that underlying fear and that underlying need 
instead of it manifesting as you being judgmental, you being hyper-dominant of others, you putting other people down, because they can acknowledge their own weaknesses or limitations and their own flaws without having to compensate. It's that compensatory behavior, like, oh, I feel bad that my kid didn't get into this college, so now I'm going to say, well, I called your kid gone, she wasn't that great. I feel bad that you got this promotion because uh, I feel insecure. So now I'm going to say, well, you know, I don't know why they pick, picked you, right? So authenticity is acknowledging that you feel a little bit jealous or acknowledging that you feel, you know, that you want to support your friend, but a part of you is is struggling because you're going through your own stuff instead of being inauthentic in ways that defend against that feeling within you, but damage your relationships. So how can we get better at that? Or how can we be develop a greater sense of security and be more authentic? Yeah, it's about being mindful and not primal. You know, when you feel triggered, being able to acknowledge that and feel that rather than have that feeling, that uncomfortable feeling drive you to behave in these ways that harm your relationship. So it takes pausing, it takes being in touch with your own emotions, being self-aware of your own emotions, treating your own emotions lovingly, so that you don't instead try to get other people to take care of your emotions for you by yelling at them, screaming at them, you know, trying to dominate them, putting them down, because fundamentally, it's because you feel like hurt, you feel guilty, you feel shame, right? Just being able to not, I feel hurt, sit, sit with that, like, let yourself feel it a little bit. Look for where you feel it, where that feeling manifests in your body, like a lump in your throat or a tightness in your chest and, and just focus on that so that, again, you're not trying to escape it through harming your relationships. When kids let their entire identity be defined by one thing, they could find themselves devastated when that thing vanishes. This is especially true for young athletes who may place their entire future on a sport only to find that they're suddenly injured and no longer able to play. Linda Flanagan, author of Take Back the Game, breaks down this phenomenon further in this clip from episode 205. And she explains how we can raise our athletic kids to have an identity outside of sports. That's the term psychologists use to describe it's usually young people, but I suppose professionals suffer from it to some extent. It's kind of the winnowing of your identity into one thing. So you're winnowed into being an athlete. I think it means your identity foreclosure. You've closed out other options for who you are. And you think of yourself as not, hey, I'm Linda. I'm a mother. I'm a writer. I, I'm a good friend. I like animals. I run. You think, I'm Linda. I'm a runner. That's what I am. That's who I am. This is really hard for young people, especially because, you know, it's great when things are going well and you're winning and healthy, but it's really a problem for people when they're suddenly are unable to compete or play for usually due to an injury or something. So it can be really devastating because you're like, who am I? If I can't play lacrosse, if I can't run, who am I? I really understand this because I have felt this at times in the past with my own running. When I was really running a lot every day, eight miles a day, and it felt so necessary that I really worried about how I would handle it when I got, when I, you know, if I got hurt, I was really worried about injuries. And then when I occasionally did get hurt, it was like, oh no, what am I going to do? 
if you're a young person and you're just trying to figure things out, that's really hard. And it can cause all kinds of mental health problems. Understandably, I can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a happy person when I can't run. Vaping has become a trendy activity among today's teens, leading to plenty of concerns from parents. Are vapes regulated? Do they have long-term health effects? Can they possibly be worse than cigarettes? In this clip from episode 190, Jamie Ducharme, author of The Incendiary Rise of Juul, discusses the lack of regulation required for e-cigarettes and why these devices are such a pressing problem. I wonder what you think about in terms of like having conversations on whether or not your kids are vaping, what parents could be talking about or having conversations about surrounding vapes and the perceptions of them, how they're, you know, portrayed on social media or um, anything around that um, that might just sort of like get conversations going. So I wouldn't say this is my particular area of expertise as I do not have children of my own and I'm not, you know, a teen psychology expert or anything, but what I have heard from people who do work in this space and specialize in this research is that one thing that can be very effective is kind of impressing upon teenagers the ways that companies market their products and how some of that does seem to be targeted to younger people. It can be very effective to kind of point out ways, I don't want to say that teenagers are being used, but sort of like the history of of tobacco companies advertising to young people and why they wanted younger people as their customers and how that legacy at least in appearance, kind of continued with the vaping industry. That can be an effective way in, I've heard. And also just teenagers today are, for the most part, very conscious of mental health and physical health and environmental health. And vaping is kind of bad for all three of those things. And those can be good entry points as well. There's a great study where they were trying to get teenagers to eat healthier foods and they like uh, compared either giving them messaging about, you know, healthy food is good for you, eating fruits and vegetables is great, you should really do more of that, um, versus messaging about how like fast food companies are trying to control you and like make money off of getting you to eat things that are bad for you. The second version was much more effective. Yeah. Um, teenagers just like hate being controlled and manipulated. Yeah. I haven't seen that study, but it sounds very similar to what I've heard from vaping experts. Once teenagers kind of learn about, for example, the downside of these in-school programs where the company selling you the product comes in to tell you not to use it. Like once you point out kind of those contradictions and those conflicts of interest, they kind of sit up and are like, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to be manipulated in that way. So that can be really effective. Yeah, I could see that. I think that's really cool. And just talking about where some of the stuff we've been talking about how the company started and where the product came from and what the real kind of goals are, because it's so easy to get caught up in just the things that are cool. Yeah, for sure. Many teens dream of being successful artists, but Thriving in the art world is no easy task. Magnus Resch, author of How to Become a Successful Artist, shares with us why networking is critical for anyone who wants to find success as an artist. In this clip from episode 183, 
he shares several anecdotes about popular artists who leveraged their network to accomplish their career goals. Here we go, right? I just gave you the advice, don't do it. Now, of course, kids will do it <laughs> because they think- They're still gonna do it. Yeah, they're still gonna do it, right? Um, why would I listen to this old man, Magnus? What does he know? I'm so much better. Fair enough, then be smart about it, right? You can, you can make yeah. it as an artist. These stories exist. I talk about this a lot. I present a lot of artists uh, like Oscar Murillo, um, who was struggling throughout his uh, university career. He was actually cleaning offices to pay for his fees at the Royal wow. Academy of Art in London. But he was smart. He knew, all right, in order to make it as an artist, I need to network. So he used every yeah. opportunity that he saw in order to network with people. He heard that a gallerist from LA is in town and visiting the Royal uh, College of Art. So he made sure that he met this guy, befriended him, got a show in LA. Then they had a, uh, this gallerist brought him to an art fair in New York. This art fair was visited by very prominent collectors. Those prominent collectors gave Oscar a um, stipend so he could come and work in Miami. It's the Rubel Foundation. And uh, from there, his career took off. David Swerner heard about it ah. and so on. Then another example yep. is Tyler Mitchell a young artist, the youngest Afro-American artist who shot a cover for Vogue. He shot the Beyonce cover for Vogue magazine. And, and this gentleman is only wow. 23 years old. So right after uh, graduating uh, or still being a student, he reached out to someone through Instagram, did a music video. Then this music video was seen by someone who worked at Vogue. And then they reached out to Tyler. Mm. A total, nobody knew Tyler Mitchell before. He, he's not coming from an wow. influential, powerful family. No. He was just a kid studying in New York and uh, using Instagram as a tool to network um, and being smart about it. Or Lucian Smith, another artist, who, he was in New York and he uh, met someone at a bar who wrote for Interview Magazine. And then this journalist wrote about, he called it the new art of America or something, an article where Lucian was included because uh -huh. they were becoming friends just by hanging out over a beer, really. And um, that helped him to catapult his career. And there are more stories like that. Boys have body issues too, and may engage in harmful behaviors as a result. In these clips from episode 189, Charlotte Markey, author of The Body Image Book for Boys, breaks down the dangers of the unregulated supplement industry. Nearly 40% of adolescent boys are consuming pills or powders that aren't guaranteed to be safe, falling prey to companies who capitalize off their insecurities. Charlotte dives into the harm these supplements can cause and how we can help teen boys steer clear of these dangerous substances. When it comes to things like the protein powder and the supplements, like you want to go to the facts. Yeah. You know, the research is just really clear that mm. they're not regulated. We're not really positive always what's in them. It's really not safe, especially for developing bodies, which are just more vulnerable. It's just really a bad idea. It's just really maddening that it's an entire industry, this sort of supplement wellness industry that's completely unregulated totally making a ton of money yeah. really capitalizing on all of our vulnerabilities about yeah, right not just our appearance but kind of like our mortality right because it's not yeah. just like a 
appearance, a lot of it's health and like you'll live longer or during the pandemic, it was like, you can build up your immune system. There's pretty good research you can get to just using Google even. And I think I would show this to kids. I would just be like, listen, Google it, you'll find it. There's a group at Harvard School of Public Health that puts out a lot of information about this. The acronym they use is STRIPED. So that particular issue, it's a, it's a specific issue, but it's really prevalent among boys um, yeah. these days, right? So something like 40% of adolescent boys in one recent study were using some sort of supplement with the interest of getting more muscular bulking up. That does not surprise me at all. We're not always as good as parents at as we need to be. Like you can subcontract some of this out and that's not irresponsible. Yeah. It actually often works better, whether it be mm. a book or a web page or another provider, like, you know, help to just get those resources to the kids you care about. You might just have to accept that they're going to be taken better coming from a different source sometimes. Yeah, totally. Right. Our kids see us as just biased sources of information because we are their parents. We might have an idea about what intelligence means, but there are actually a few different types of intelligence. Joe Wimblegroves, author of Rise of the Girl, explains how intelligence looks different for everyone and why we shouldn't force teens to conform to what we believe seems smart. She also discusses the importance of allowing teens to explore new things so that they can find their passions and interests. Here's a clip from episode 186. Talk to me a little bit about this. You have some of Howard Gartner's research in here about the eight different types of intelligence. And you're talking about the theory of multiple intelligences, believes no individual should be labeled with one specific kind of intelligence. People can have multiple strengths, in fact, a unique blend of strengths. I mean, why does that belong in this book about the rise of the girl? And um, how should parents think about the multiple intelligences or use that information? So I really like this when I was doing my research, because sometimes when we think about being intelligent, it could mean that you're a grade A student and you, you're a whiz at maths or science or English. Well, that's what it means. Yeah. Well, there's lots of different types of intelligence, such as myself. So I might not have done very well at my maths and my English. I was very average, but actually okay. my creative intelligence are mm -hmm. amazing because I'm, I am now an author and I was able to package the things that I would consider as my strengths yep. into shaping my career and, yeah. and my journey. So again, I just love looking at children as individuals and thinking about what their skill set are. And there's a famous guy called Dr. Peter Benson, who I also mention in the book, who talks about yeah. everybody having a spark. That was the next thing I was going to ask you about. Oh, I yep. just love his TED talk. And I, I love him. I just think the stuff that he was saying about how everybody has a spark and they're just, just waiting to be lit. And I think through this sort of multiple intelligences, when you align all of that together, they really help to uncover who that individual is. And when they find their passions and their strengths and the things that that make them who they are. I think that's when it all comes to fruition. And that's when people can really find the things that they enjoy, which may shape their future and may shape their career, such as mine. Yeah, having that openness that you don't really know what that is gonna be for your kids and that 
you're trying to help them discover. Or I see the teenage years a lot of times as like a kind of a phase of experimenting. It's like you're a little scientist trying to find your spark, trying to find what it is it that sort of brings together your abilities, your intelligences that really are innate to you and also things that just get you going that light you up and that you're passionate about and when you can find sort of the overlapping circles of those things then that is your your life becomes expansive uh from that point and how can we instead of trying to sort of force our kids into what we think is important or what we want them to get better at um sort of how do we take a step back and sort of guide them into discovering which intelligences are best for them and trying to find what that spark is for themselves yeah and i think children in particular can do that by trying different hobbies trying different sports yeah. and again it all comes with not being afraid putting your hand up to try something and actually there'll be a lot of stuff that they probably don't like and that's also really important to to understand that so whether you try gymnastics whether you try rugby whether you try soccer whether you go to girl guiding and maybe you know do lots of art and craft or or want to do stuff outside it could be archery it could be anything yeah they could be a fantastic artist and be really creative they could end up becoming an architect they could think you know really really differently and being able to look at different things on different levels yeah. but they can only do that if as parents and caregivers we we open the opportunity for them so they can give stuff give stuff a try and you know in most cases i don't know what it's like in the states but you know you can go and try stuff they do trials you can just get your trainers on and go and go and try things and so many of my friends and people that i know almost found their passion by accident yeah there's a great contribution in my book from rochelle clark who's a rugby player she's one of the most capped england rugby players in the world you know she was telling me how being a 15 year old she was at school she felt like she was quite chunky she defines herself as chunky when she was at school but that's the way that she was built and you know she never quite felt like she always fitted in she wasn't in that cool group and then one day somebody asked her could she play rugby because somebody had dropped out and she said I don't know how to play am I the right person to ask they said ah just come along just give it a go you know you'll be great actually she went along gave it a go and the coach said wow this girl can play rugby she ended up playing for her country which is obviously incredible and just from almost started playing by accident, this coach saw that spark, saw that potential in her and thought, wow, she's really good rugby player. And what's so lovely about it is that from being that 15 year old thinking that I'm not tall and skinny and I don't look like everybody else, her body is so strong. Her body became her strength and became her career. And I love that. I just think that's such a powerful message. Sometimes, parents can benefit from asking teens for feedback. Mark Goulston, author of Get Out of Your Own Way, Overcoming Self-Defeating Behavior, explains how we can establish a dialogue with teens about which aspects of our parenting are working and which aren't. In this clip from episode 175, Mark explains how this can help us prepare teens for adulthood. When you hit age 18 and you go into the world that you have passion as opposed to boredom, that you have stick to itness as opposed to just quitting when something becomes hard, uh, that you have patience as opposed to impatience, you know, that you're able to cooperate when you need to, as opposed to being a know-it-all. And my main role is 
for you to look like the good the good alternative when you're 18 as opposed to the bad alternative going forward as your mom or dad uh, what do i need to do more of and what do i need to stop doing so that you end up as that 18 year old who has passion perseverance patience can cooperate uh, can deal with disappointment can take a hit you know when life hits you you know, what is it that I need to do more consistently so that's what you end up being? And what is something that I should stop doing completely so that you end up being that way? You know, and see what they say. What kind of relaxation is the most effective? Alex Pang, author of Rest, why you get more done when you work less breaks down different kinds of rest and tells us why some are more effective than others. Oftentimes, the activities that make us feel the most relaxed are a little bit more effortful than we might expect. Alex shares why in this clip from episode 203. Relaxation control mastery experiences mental detachment from work. What do you mean by those and how do we create breaks that they kind of include all four of those elements? This is a set of properties that were researched by a German psychologist named Sabina Sonnentag. And part of what she was interested in was understanding what it is that makes different kinds of breaks or recreation or rest more restorative than others. What she argued was that it's not just a simple kind of mechanistic, you do this and you'll get a break from it. It also has to do with kind of how you feel about the activity or what kind of deeper psychological benefit you get from it. For example, that sense of relaxation, doing things that you don't have to think really hard about, you know, which you can just kind of get into and do are more restorative than things that require a lot of concentration. That sense of control and mastery are things that are psychologically reassuring and especially valuable if you are working in high stress or uncertain jobs where you don't have a lot of that. So in a way, I think it's one of the reasons that video games for, or for plenty of people are attractive, right? It's an opportunity for that kind of mastery experience, that sort of detachment that they may find hard to find elsewhere. It's really well suited actually for these four aspects because yeah, it is like you say, it's a mastery experience. It really like mm -hmm. captures your attention. So it gets your mind off of kind of whatever else you're just working on. And, you know, I think that arguably the problem with video games is not that they offer those sorts of opportunities. It has to do with the amount of time that we spend on them. Totally, right. It is possible to overindulge on the healthiest things. And I think the great challenge, certainly that I had when I was younger with video games was not the nature of the video game, but rather the amount of time that I spent playing it and the challenge of keeping to, you know, my promise to myself that this was the last game and I was going to would have walk away after that. <laughs> Just one more. You asked the question of how do we find these things? And I think that the answer is that it's not going to be the case that the same things will offer sort of the same levels of restoration, relaxation, et cetera, for everybody. Basically, you have to be a little reflective about it, right? Think about okay. what things do you really enjoy doing? What things are you good at? What things provide a mental or psychological recharge in a relatively limited amount of time? And sometimes these are things that come really easily. Sometimes they're not. You know, for example, I have a workout routine and I don't really love 
spending time doing cardio stuff, but I get a lot out of it. And you can't do email when you're doing TRX or, you know, you're working on the weights. So not only is it good for me physically, but it provides that opportunity for detachment. I can measure my progress today compared to where I was last week. So it's, you know, an opportunity for kind of clear improvement, which for like perfectionist workaholic types is something that we really like, even if it doesn't score high for me on like the pleasure scale compared to binge watching the latest really cool show. It's something from which I derive a great deal of benefit along some of those other qualities that Sonan Tag had would have identified in her list. So bottom line is you got to think a little bit and kind of observe yourself to see which things really deliver those benefits and don't just choose the easy stuff. Thanks for listening to our compilation. It's our gift to you. Enjoy the holiday season and we'll see you again in 2023.